following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. somebody like, oh, I've been meditating for 40 years and I've done all that. It's, well, okay, but you know, what does, what does that mean? And, and, and what are you like when the, when the doors are closed? I don't know any of that. And also, um, what's interesting about spiritual resumes is that we can be very accomplished in certain things. And, you know, Ken Wilber talks about this kind of vertical line where you can be um, extremely adept at going into high levels of uh, meditative absorption, but be really stingy and dislike. Or you can have extreme mindfulness, but interpersonally, you're a mess. Right? And I've met, you know, having lived in a monastery, when you live in a monastery, you don't know who you're going to get, right? People are coming in with their shadows, with their aspirations, with their projections. And so, you know, they can be very gentle and very kind. You know, my trip when I, you know, I was 23, 24, was that I needed to look the part. I was really much into just like, you know, having my arms full and just like... <laughs> and uh, that lasted about a couple of years before that. And, um, Talking about meditation is quite difficult. I think that it's one of um, one of those topics that you know I can start talking and you will either get really bored because like I've heard this a thousand times, or I can't connect with what you're saying. And so what I'm going to try to do is to describe certain things, to so be descriptive but not prescriptive. And so if I said you know I, I'm doing this, I'm not saying you should do it. I just wanted to clarify that. Um, I also think again, you know, I can say, well, I close my eyes and I talk to angels. But how does that help you? Right? And there are, you know, if you, lay, if you read Autobiography of a Yogi, you know, there's so much magic in that book. You know, visions, talking to Jesus and talking to all these gurus. But again, you know, I wake up in the morning and I'm like, well, what do I do with that? The fact that you were in the Himalayas talking to a, you know, a great master. 
So when I was a kid, I remember being fascinated by my grandmother. She used to shut the door with her friends and pray the rosary. And at the end, they would come out and they would just be beaming. So I'm going to talk a little bit about mystic Catholicism, because it has informed my life, and about Theravada Buddhism, because it has informed my life. And so I got curious when I was little. Um, I'm from El Salvador, and I grew up right in the middle of a civil war. And, uh, you know, I grew up with nannies and cooks, sometimes drivers. And all of a sudden, a war came in, and my mom came to Minnesota with a suitcase. And uh, then we were refugee kids, all of a sudden. But in, the, in between getting refugee status for us, I stayed in El Salvador with my dad. And it was a very traumatic time. And I would go to the chapel at my school and, um, and just have conversations with the Virgin Mary. And, uh, and to this day, that image is something that's very healing for me, the, the image of the goddess. Yeah. And I used to pray the rosary when I was a Buddhist monk. Still do. And I brought some show and tells. So I noticed that I'm not the only one with beads. So I want to share um, how I use some these beads. These are made out of uh, lotus seeds, and they were given to me in my ordination. And uh, they're very useful little things. You can go to the internet, get yourself some. It's 108 beads. Uh, in Hinduism, they also have 108. It's a special number. And uh, sometimes I do walking meditation, and each length is one bead. Then I'm done. Sometimes I just sit, and I'm like, I'm going to do 108 breaths. So each breath I take, one bead. Sometimes there's 108 mantras. May I be at peace, may everyone be at peace, one beat. May I be at peace, may everyone be at peace, one beat. So it's very useful, because then you don't have to worry about timer, and if you don't have a time constraint, then it's, it's just a useful tool, and there's so many ways of using it. Um, I was on a two-month retreat beginning of the year, and I started using it to count my distracting thoughts. Did anyone here have distracting thoughts? And I would just be like, Huh, funny thought, bead. Stupid thought, bead. Angry thought, you know, just, just let them be. Uh, this teaching of non-self is interesting in Buddhism. To me, it's not a doctrine anymore. It's a description. And it, I find it restful. Because I'm like, did I just really think that? Oh, there's no self. So then, okay. <laughs> I mean, seriously. So meditating for 25 years, I, used to, I was sitting like right where you were. Yeah, I was sitting right there about maybe five months ago. And I'm like, it would be nice to levitate just a little bit. Just like an inch. And maybe a pink halo. That would be kind of fun. And then the people that are checking out how other people are sitting would then gossip about it. And I'm like, tell it always story. And then I was like, wow. Okay. That's impressive. And so I, I allow thoughts to just come. Um, I want to share a little bit of um, the traditional way that is presented in the suttas in Buddhism. Um, I have a deep appreciation for Pali because it's a language that, like Sanskrit, uh, that allows for all sorts of, of concepts to be abbreviated in just one word. 
And so the Buddha talks about <clears throat> Vitaka, Vichara, Piti, Sukha, and Ekagata. It sounds like Mamujamo, Mamujamo. But really, what he's talking about is you sit down and then you have Vitaka, and it's, that's when you decide whether you're going to have a meditation object. And that's where you center yourself. And it's, um, it's not a deep state, but in Vitaka you are entering meditation. And Vichara, <coughs> the second stage, is where Vipassana happens. You know, we have, we have uh, this, this distinction between insight meditation, right, and also the, the more relaxing part. At this kind of Vipassana, there are 40 meditation objects. If you go to this little bookshelf, you'll see the Visuddhimagga. It's a treatise written in the 12th or 13th century. And you will see the 40 things, you know, like meditation on death. You can sit half an hour imagining your body rotting and maggots eating it. I've never done it, but it's one of the 40. One of them is um, meditating on celestial beings, like the Virgin Mary or Krishna. I love Krishna. He's really fun. So the Buddha gives full permission to think about angels. One of them is looking at a circle, a red circle, or looking at fire, looking at earth. Looking, there's so many meditation objects. So you can go to one of the great lakes, one of the little lakes here, look at water, and your mind relaxes. That is the water casino. You look at a candle, that's the fire casino. There's so many meditation objects. And nowadays, there are so many meditation teachers. I was reading The Economist last week, and there was a whole page ad of a meditation course that was being offered. I was like, wow, The Economist. You know, it's like things are changing. You can buy CDs with full meditation courses, so there's so much there. And so I, you know, when I look at it, I'm like, well, what are the commonalities? Sit down. Christians pray. Buddhists meditate. But we have the same human mind. And so is the Catholic mind really that different from the Hindu mind? I, I, I personally don't think that. Especially since I've done Hindu mantras and I've done um, Catholic prayers. By the way, my form of Catholicism uh, in El Salvador was liberation theology. The Christology was like Jesus was this strong kind of like leader figure, very powerful. And... Uh, and as little kids, they, these Jesuits would tell us, question the church, question the doctrine, question everything, and really talk about mindfulness in their own way. And so this thing, you know, we have Vitaka, you enter meditation, then you have Vichara, and you can just stay there, and that's enough. Most of the time, people stay at this stage. When you're concentrating, you're allowing the thoughts to come in. But you could have a full hour of doing metta meditation, uh, or you can be doing just mindfulness of breathing, the classic one. As you become experienced, or if you're prone to it, then you go to the delight. Piti, P-I-T-I, not the piti, sad one. And piti can be described in many ways, and um, you know, some people talk about tingling, some people talk about energy, um, St. Teresa of Avila calls it gustos, 
She wrote a book called The Interior Castle. I only recommend it if you know about theology or if you are a meditator, otherwise it won't make any sense. You know, she talks about, at this point the reptiles will come into your mansion. I'm like, what reptiles? It's like, oh, the monkey mind. You know, in many Asian traditions, they talk about like, the mind is like a monkey, always running around. And so she talks about entering this mansion, and she was a great meditation master. Okay. She uh, was on the Counter-Reformation, uh, reformed the Carmelites, big hero of mine. Very grounded, uh, very earthy woman, and yet she did the eight jhanas. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about jhana. So PT is this delight. Um, it can be calm. It can also be unstable. Uh, I use the term jiggly wigglies when your body kind of does these funny things. And that can happen if you are an experienced meditator. Sometimes energy will come. Sometimes it's just your body does these things. And so when I started having it, um, you know, I would like rock and all this stuff. And there was a novice that used to sit right behind me who used to rock like that. In his starchy robes, he would make this big noise. So Ajahn V was the only time that I ever saw him be like, whoever's doing that, stop. <laughs> because, you know, you, you, you indulge in it. Um, in some religious traditions, they focus on that and they stay there. I mean, I don't know if the Quakers and the Shakers were doing that. I mean, I don't know if that's why they were quaking and shaking. But it, your body can do that. Uh, what happened to me with the energy then, I, uh, I went into mudra meditation spontaneously. So mudra is how the hands, and, uh, and I was quite embarrassed to do it in public, so I would do it, in, you know, and sometimes I would go into these like really traditional mudra postures, and then the energy would just come out. And, uh, and no one told me about it, I would just do it. And that happens as you meditate, things spontaneously happen, like Ajahn Sumedho, one of my teachers, uh, teaches the sound of silence. You hear this high-pitched noise, and you rest in it. Well, Hindus have been doing that for a long time, to listen to this sound, a universal sound. And he just discovered it on his own. And so that happened with me with, with, um, with mudras. Um, I told a friend that I was going to mention mudras, and I said, I'm going to tell them that if you really concentrate, then you can go like this and go, vogue. <laughs> so I did it. Um, the point is, the point of saying that is that um, as you go into meditation, you can find all sorts of things. Your karma can start to write them. Um, and this is the time also when I want to talk about the, the, the title of this talk is Why Do You Meditate? And so the story of I am somebody right now who is going to do something and get enlightened in the future. Um, I didn't consciously think like that in my 20s, but I, I, I did. I used to think if I try really, really hard and I follow the scriptures and I have integrity, then I'll get my enlightenment degree. <laughs> right? You do this, 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 and then you get a light. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't really happen like that. And so how do you, how could I, what could I possibly say to encourage you or, or to um, say, don't have an achieving mind 
if you are American, the conditioning is to be competitive, to achieve, to have a self that does something. I'm in the process of revising my resume. I'm moving to San Francisco in a month. And it's, I find it just really interesting. It's like, yeah, I have to sell myself. I have to be competitive in the job market. And so it's natural then that you translate that into spiritual life. I'm going to be like spiritual warrior. I'm going to be this. I'm going to be that. Um, I don't know what to say about it. it you know, if you feel like that, it's, it's, it's good to study it. I also want to talk about um, the notion that we don't have time to meditate. I think that can be true, but many times it's that we don't have the energy. Because, you know, if we sit and we meditate and all we feel is pain or just distracted thoughts, you're not getting any candy, right? You're like, you're not getting anything good out of it. So it feels like work. So if you have kids and you've had a long day at work and then you sit, you might have the time, but maybe what you need to do is watch, watch some trash TV, right? Maybe that's what your mind just needs to... I was watching RuPaul's Drag Race before I got here. <laughs> Kept myself in the mood. Just for research purposes. And that's something that I've had to deal with too. Um, um, this retreat that I was in, I got the monastic pool really strongly again. I, um, my mind went the quiet as it has ever been. And, uh, and I've, I've had this monastic, in Catholic tradition, they have it, they, it is named as a calling. So, sat with it for two weeks, I'm like, yeah, whatever, you know, calling. Three weeks, it was still there. Four weeks, I was telling a friend uh, that my job at, in the morning was to clean the temple, and I was dusting Ajahn Man's statue. And Ajahn Man was sort of Ajahn Chah's teacher, although they only met for three days. And Ajahn Chah um, was very successful. There's 300 monasteries that are affiliated with Ajahn Chah's monasteries. And he influenced a lot of Westerners. He was Ajahn Sumedho's teacher, so there's his lineage. So I was cleaning the statue, and I looked into his eyes, and I was like, whoa. The question is, what is the difference between you and me? So that the conundrum was, if the story of time is linear and I'm going to get enlightened in the future doesn't work, then I just had this question, what is the difference between Jesus and I and any other great being and I? And at a level, there is no difference. And then you're going to, you have to be deeply in the present moment. Like, yeah, but I still have to update my resume. Right? You still have to feed the kids. And so living with that, I was like, it's just going to be easier to be a monk again. So in the fifth week, I had a Skype conversation with my partner. Incredibly difficult conversation. I might dump you for the monastery. But in the, in the tradition, um, you cannot be a monk unless you have the blessing of your parents or the blessing of your wife. Traditional. <laughs> and um, and you know, and I just said I, I I cannot process this this calling or whatever unless I talk about it. And, and and I'm still I'm still trying to integrate that of saying what does it mean to practice full time? What is it? You know what? Is it better to be a monk? 
And actually, I know that the answer is no. There's no better words. It's, it's how you practice, how you are. And, and now, I'm, you know, I'm interested, it's like, can I be patient? Can I be kind? And still the question of how does meditation fit into all of this? So I started really, really meditating when I was 15 or so, and then I went through the transcendental meditation movement, paid my money to get my mantra, and I would meditate 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes in the evening every day without missing. I didn't know exactly why, but I just liked it. I just I was like, okay, I'm doing this. And there's been periods of my time when I'm like, no, this is not what I need to be doing right now. But it's okay. When I've taught high school students, I said, you know, how about if you meditate for five minutes every day and see if it changes your life? I don't know if any of, any of them followed my advice. Um, but after 25 years, there are some things that I, that I really know. One is going on retreats is very helpful. Um, I'm very interested in how now neuroscientists are looking at meditation. And when you have neuroplasticity, right, so your brain changes. And when you do these concentrated things, it's more powerful than doing little bit, little bit. So if you have a chance to um, do go on retreat, um, it can be very helpful. Also quite annoying. <laughs> there's, this, there's this Thai monk who says, talking about demons, right? Now, talk about demons all that. Take it all as metaphor. When you're living your life, right, and just going to the casino and having the nice food or whatever, you know, he's describing, your demons stay away. As soon as you start trying to purify the mind, they come knocking at your door. Sort of like if you had no money, the, the, the bank or whoever, mortgage people are like, okay, I'm not going to get anything. But if you win the lottery, you're going to get like, yep, you owe me you know, 10,000 bucks. And so that's what, that's what happens. As soon as you try to meditate or to do something good, stuff is going to come up. For me, it was anger. In my family, if you were angry, you had to look very peaceful. Angry, not good. Peaceful, good. I'm like, I'm not an angry person. I'm sitting there as a novice with fury. I was like, oh, that's new. And at the same time, through meditation, I remember, the, I remember the moment I forgave my father very clearly. My father did some very unskillful, unskillful things. But he was, like, he was like demons had left my shoulders. And I didn't make forgiveness happen, right? I didn't work. I, I worked through it, and I, I meditated on, okay, what was going on? And then it happens. And that moment to me is that letting go. But how do you force letting go? It's, it's not possible. It's not possible. Um, so going back a little bit to the poly, then you have this delight that can happen. And then you're going to, after PT, you're going to sukha. And sukha is a kind of um, well-being. It's a groundedness, and it's, it's, not, it's not unstable. The PT can be more unstable. Um, this is also around this time in meditation is when you can get a nimitta. And sorry if I'm just throwing all these things at you, but I know that there's, again, like there's beginners, there's people in the middle. And nimitta can, can be uh, a visual object. Sometimes it's like a pearl that people look at. Um, sometimes there's the fireworks nimitta. This is what I get. Like, it's just a lot of colors. 
you can have all of that phenomena. And then you have ekagata, which is one-pointedness. So those, those five steps, when, when you reach one-pointedness, that is the description of first jhana. In the Noble Eightfold Path, when you look at right meditation, right meditation is the eight jhanas, which are the rooms in the castle of St. Teresa of Avila. They're exactly the same. Where is the mind going to go if you have a human mind? Right? And so that's, that's what happens. You go into, into states of absorption. The mind quiets down. And uh, there are books written about it. You know, Ajahn Brahmawanso in his book talks about it's better than any orgasm you can have. I'm like, okay. And again, I'm reading that. I'm like, is that encouraging or is it going to make people more competitive? I want to get something that's much better than the best orgasm. Why not? Right? But if, if, you know, if our experience is I sit and all I get is an achy shoulders and distracted mind and I feel more tired after it, how is it helpful to know that you can go into these great things? I think it's helpful in the sense that it, it that you know, it's there. So if you know, if it happens, I. But the first time I, I got this feeling of like delight and whatever, I was like, whoa, what was that? And then I got out of it immediately. And then I was like, okay, okay, now I'm going to sit and do the five stages and really try hard to get that. And they warn you know, teachers warn you about this all the time. So. Um, how are we doing at the time? 8.30. I'll open it for questions in about five minutes. And um, I don't know. I just think meditation can be tricky. I'm also very interested in the fact that in the West it's exploding, that there's so much interest in it. Uh, yoga has become so popular. Now yoga injuries are becoming popular. <laughs> I go to Lifetime and they had Brazilian music, yoga, and it's like, yeah, more poses. And they're like, so competitive. And, you know, there are people that are petitioning for yoga to be an Olympic sport. And, uh, yeah, because why not? Then I'm thinking meditation is going to be an Olympic sport. Um, I think I want to finish by saying, too, that it's, it's nice to know what kind of... Um, proclivity, what kind of mind we have. For example, there are people that can really connect to devotion. Okay? So you bow, you light candles, you offer this, you offer mantras, you offer you and it's outward. And you can connect to silence through devotion. I can do that. I still go to the basilica and you know as you enter the basilica, turn right, there's Mary, she has flowers on her head, she's and I light my candle and I'm like, it's good. But if you're an intellectual, that would drive you crazy. So some people have to go through the, you know, in Burma, they, they like the Abhidhamma. And it's phenomenology and ontology. And you look at all this, you know, like minutely describing how the mind is. Monks in Burma say, did you go to sleep on your in-breath or your out-breath? And they know. Or these Tibetan monks that are like, I think I'm going to die tonight. Goodbye. And they're going to find the body sitting there. Okay.
because you trained your mind in certain ways, right? And um, I've had a chance to meet a few monks who have fame for being psychic. And so that can be impressive. But again, you know, what if I what if I said to you, in your past life, you were this, 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 and that. So how do we even trust our experiences? I go into hypnosis so easily. When I was at the U, I, um, I hated my logic class, so I went to hypnosis class to be able to get through logic class. And um, they were like, sit down, you have, a, you have a lemon in your mouth. And I'm like, oh, okay. And then they said, you have 10 books in one hand and 100 balloons in the other. Open your eyes. And I was like, this. And so was the lemon in my mouth? No, but I'm experiencing lemon. So what's hypnosis? I mean, it's interesting, right? It's not meditation. Meditation has this awareness in it. And trance does not. When I was there in that imaginary elevator in my hypnosis class, I was like, whoa, this elevator's going fast. There's no awareness. I'm in a trance. When I'm sleeping, that's not awareness. Even lucid dreaming is not meditation. And so then what is it? And I think what it has in common, whether you're praying or chanting or bowing, is how much awareness is there. Because even in those restful spaces, I don't know the Agrupa jhanas, the, the formless meditation absorptions. I always find the term uh, neither perception nor non-perception. I have no idea what that means exactly. Like, like you're sitting there and you're just in this space and... It's just so expansive, and it's like, okay, I don't know what that means. Um, so I'll finish up with my other show-and-tell items. After a few years, my robe got all old, so I saved a little bit of my robe. Um, in Thailand, you have to dye your robes with this tree, and the color <clears throat> gets described as the color of baby poo. And I didn't like that color, so I got a, I got a nice kind of brownish. And I, I brought um, this quote from St. Teresa of Avila. I put part of it on my Facebook profile. And see how playing with it, changing the word God to pure awareness? See how there's a similarity. Let nothing disturb you. Nothing frighten you. All things are passing. God never changes. Patience obtains all things. Nothing is wanting to him who possesses God. God alone suffices. You can change God to pure awareness. It sounds very Buddhist. All things are passing. Impermanence, right? And so it's a, it's a, li- a lifelong process. I meditate. Sometimes I don't meditate. But I'm so grateful that I have it in my toolbox for life. So moving to a new city, not knowing other people, grieving the fact. Out of the, you know, I've lived in seven countries, but this is home. Minnesota is the closest I have of home. And so here I am. You know, I just admit my, my condo is filled with boxes. 
basically all this stuff. We can't find a place to live in San Francisco. There's all these things going on in my life. And yet I know that I can sit and be like, this is a good space. So I feel very grateful for it. Um, before we start the sort of different format of asking questions, uh, by the way, if I don't know the answer of something, I just say I don't know. So don't expect me to know everything. But um, I want you to talk to someone that's close to you for about two minutes. How are you, Tyler? <laughs> just ask them why they're here. And after two minutes, you're going to switch and tell them why you're here. Just and you know it could be because you always come. But then what's after that? So see how many answers you can get in two minutes. Introduce yourself. I think that Sangha is really nice to have people around. We live in a society that, that there's so much isolation, I think. So talk to someone you have a note starting now. Say your name and ask them why you're here. I should tell you my story. nice to meet another fellow of our species. We're such a strange species. We're so weird. Seriously. We have all this climate change and we're like, eh, whatever. Right? All this injustice, all these crazy things in the world. That's one thing too with meditation, you know, it inspires me to try not to be part of the problem. I still am, but so I'm just wondering if anybody has any comments or questions or anything that wasn't clear or something that you want me to talk about a little bit more. of the levels of meditation? There's a few, a few purposes. Um, one is that it's okay to develop uh, samatha meditation. So again, vipassana is you're investigating, investigating, investigating. Samatha, you're calm, you're blissing out. Okay? There are, so many, there are some teachers that say the danger with samatha meditation is that after you get relaxed, you have to deal with the daily grind of the world. And I read that and I'm like, the re there's a danger in getting a massage, because after the massage, you have to go back to non-massage world. I'm like, what's the problem with a massage? 
The other thing is, Samatha meditation can give you what the Hare Krishnas called a higher taste. So you don't want to steal somebody else's candy if the candy is inside. You don't get addicted to sex or to you know drugs, for example. It, it many times um, it takes us away from our daily experience. So when the three-year-old spins and like, whoa, I'm dizzy, you're out of that daily experience. And so samatha meditation can also give you the strength to go into, it might, in my opinion, vipassana. And it can also nourish you. Okay. I was in Kenya last year and I met this woman who's been a nun for a while and she works in this orphanage in the middle of nowhere and she is beaming. She's talking to us and I'm like, Sister, do you pray? Oh, yes. I'm only an instrument of God. I'm plugged in. I'm only her God's servant. And she's using that energy when she prays because she knows how to pray. So going to the taxonomy is that as you develop that, then you know, for example, that when you get the delight, instead of going into the jiggly wigglies, you go and you calm yourself so that you don't indulge in that. Then you're in sukha, which is like, whoa, this is so blissed out. But then you let go of that so that you don't get stuck at that level, right? And then you're in, when you're in ekagata, the, the one-pointedness, it is such a concentrated, it's still delightful, but it's not um, bubbly. It's not effervescent. And so these levels are descriptions of letting go. And they are, I was just talking to this, um, this man who's uh, working with me. We're, we're doing Skype counseling. You know, he's doing the Enneagram with me. And, you know, because I'm processing all this stuff like, oh, am I a monk? Am I and um, he was saying, you know, yeah, but, you know, these states are really, it's, it's like something that happens. It's not the purpose of it. And I said, yeah, but how many of us buy that? If I'm describing to you this delightful thing, what is it going to take to just be with it and allow the delight to just happen? And so there are instructions to go, to go into these deeper states because um, they can be healing, they can be good, they can be um, give you a perspective. Uh, it was interesting. Like with me, with the doctrine of non-self, it actually stopped being a doctrine for me after I experienced some of these calm states, as opposed to trying to read about it. Did I answer your question? Yeah, you did. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Two things. Regarding the malas and the rosaries, yes. having 108 beads, it's also quite interesting to know that American baseball has 108 stitches. <laughs> American baseball has 108 what? Eight stitches. The, the umpires didn't count them, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. That's why people call it the church of baseball. It's very auspicious. <laughs> <laughs> but I was wondering about the, no idea. the life of a monk. Uh -huh. When you were particularly with Ajahn and Sinead, yeah. what's it like? I mean, I understand that you have you know, what is it like to be a monk? It depends on what monastery and what time of the year. So I started in Thailand, and they just gave me a hut, and then flip-flops and a robe, 
and you wake up at three in the morning and you have one meal and most of the time you're on your, by yourself. Unless it's the range retreat when you study philosophy and you have more chance. Um, then during my range retreat I was sent to Pujamkom, which is in the Laotian border. And the huts were about a mile away from each other and we just saw each other once. Um, and I was just living in a hut in, by, just by myself. So it's quite different being in Thailand because they just give you food and they let you be. It's like, it's like panda bears. It's rare and the people like to feed them. You know, <laughs> kind of like, they like having monks around. Um, then I moved to Amravati when the temple was being built. So it was a construction site. There was a lot of work and a lot of grumbling monks like, ah, I don't this. And, um, and I was more like, how can I be of service? How can I, you know, how can I be here? How can I be? And people coming from all over the world. I was the guest monk, so which means I would welcome people and show them to the room. And every day I had to deal with guest monk duties and doing the chores. And we have two meals a day. We have some gruel. Now it's kind of fancy. You get fruit and you get yogurt sometimes. It's very fancy. Um, so there's the work period, and then the silent retreat is three months, and we used to do one month of uh, no talking, no reading, and group practice for five in the morning until 9 p.m. So you have that kind of retreat time, and you have work time. And then what is it like personally? It changes, right? Like a 24-year-old male body is not designed for celibacy. Right, and so having to deal with like, whoa, what is this sexual feeling? And I and I found out for the first time that the new moon and the full moon would feel differently energetically, sexually, for example. So it's interesting to investigate things like that. Like, oh, this is interesting. Um, so boring at times, inspiring at times, and it's different for every month. So. That's very great. I was thinking about a lot of your investigation when you were talking about going through these different levels and different stages of the or something. I was wondering if folks just kind of all got together and talked about that. Let's try this now. Sometimes, sometimes, yeah, sometimes. Um, because again, just because you put on a robe doesn't mean that the neurosis is gone, right? Or the competitiveness is gone. Or, um, so yeah, you get monks saying, not necessary to do the jhanas. Uh, Ajahn Chah, for example, many times would be like, you know, don't get caught up in, 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 in trying to get jhana. And yet when you actually read his meditation instructions, he talks about Vitaka Vichara, Pitieka, Tsukagata. So he teaches the first jhana, but doesn't really um, emphasize it. There was also an Australian monk that would go into jhana really quickly, and he would just kind of like nudge him, and, and uh, he took him as his personal attendant, and wouldn't let, wouldn't let him blaze out. Because he needed, he, needed, he needed to be grounded. So he would just kind of annoy him. You know, he, was, he was very sad in many ways, Ajahn Chah. Um, so yeah, there's there's some talk about it, and you know we used to go to the retreats, and it's, it's an oral. Many times it's an oral transmission. You know, Ajahn Sumedho would talk about the sound of silence, and Ajahn B would talk about you know metta in very specific ways, and you pick up, and you hit visiting monastics. There was a nun 
who all she taught was sit and go like this with your arm <laughs> for half an hour. And that's how she meditates. All her mindfulness goes like this. For Sister Vayama, so now she's an abbot, she's a bhikkhuni now, she just does one inch at a time in the front and one inch in the back, mindfulness of the body. That's all she does. And she does it one inch here and then one inch here. And just do that. Um, so, yeah. Do you have the history of um, the term Vipassana from the time Buddha taught and the different ways that it's changed since then? Um, I attended a number of courses that were 10 days long, 12 hours a day, that were, you know, mm-hmm. very strict meditation, silence, you know, two meals a day, all that kind of stuff. They actually lived at that center for a period of time, and the Vipassana that was taught there was the one inch at a time, and it was just connecting mind and body, and it didn't have anything to do with, you know, this object or that object or this idol or that idol. Mm-hmm. And I found it very um, simple in an intellectual sense, very difficult physically, mm-hmm. but um, I hear many times and hear questions that sound like their people are confused about what they're supposed to do with their mind. And I have no confusion whatsoever about what I'm supposed to do with my mind. Mm. And I just systematically go through my body inch by inch back and forth. Mm. And it's my understanding that that's the type of meditation that Buddha taught. And that since that time, the term Vipassana has sort of changed. And I'm wondering if that's accurate or... Different things. In America now, Vipassana sometimes is described as a type of Buddhism. Yes. Like it has become a church or something. You know, like I'm a Vipassana practitioner. Um, As far as what the Buddha taught, I immediately go into, I wasn't there. Right. So I know what some of the Pali scriptures say, and I know the context. So having seen my teachers and having read about Ajahn Man and Ajahn Cha, this context is very interesting. So when he would talk to a prince or somebody from the royalty, he would talk in a certain way. When he would talk to a farmer, he would talk in a certain way. So this meditation about you know, what he taught and how he taught it really changed. And so you know, meta-meditation is kind of loving kindness. is the one that's interesting that crosses both. Because you can be doing investigation, but it can take you to jhana. And some of them do not. Uh, paying attention to the breath is one that is both. Anapanasati can take you to jhana, but it's also very investigative. I don't know about the rotting corpses one, whether that takes you anywhere. Because I'm like, I just don't want to do that. <laughs> but I've been recommended, because I'm a sensual type, but, you know, like I... I just get into beauty and all that, and then um, apparently looking at rotting corpses in my mind would be good for me. But <laughs> I'll get there someday, maybe. Um, so yeah, you know, as far as how it has changed, I know the retreat, the ten-day retreat, many times came from the Burmese tradition and Goenkaji, right. when um, because Westerners could have 
five days off plus the weekends and Friday evenings, so you would have this ten-day retreat. When Ajahn Chah found out about them, like, what? That's weird. What? What are you doing ten days? And then he learned about it. Wednesdays now it goes through Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. And so then Ajahn Chah started teaching retreats right. after a while, you know, to be like, yeah, this is a chance for people to do it. Um, but it's following what? Because again, the mind is the mind. Right. Whether you're a Muslim mind or a Jewish mind or a Buddhist mind. And so how it is taught, how you get there, is Yes and no. I mean, universal. The, the, what happens to the mind is universal, but you can get there by chanting. So. Did I answer it? Did I address what you were getting? What were you were getting at? Well, I mean, the his, I mean, it's hard. It's hard for me to understand the total history of. Yeah. I hear the term vipassana um, thrown along fairly loosely, and from my standpoint. I mean, it was something that was taught by Buddha to his student, who was taught yeah. to his student, who was taught to his student, yeah. who eventually was taught to Kuba King, who eventually taught Goenka. Yeah. Well, you have to remember, too, that when the different schools separated, yeah. then people claimed that the Buddha said this, or the Buddha said right. that, or these scriptures right. were hidden by Nagas, and then they were discovered. Like, Nagas are these serpents. And so how did it happen? There's some people that have really strong opinions about it. Um, there's a monk right now who's written a book uh, on um, Buddhist sects and, and how the sectarian movement, you know, came and how it traveled. Um, so it's kind of—I think it's kind of hard to find the historical. Yeah, yeah. So we have time for one last little question. If anybody has one last little question. Yeah. So what is then? What is then? Yeah. Okay. Um, as Buddhism traveled to the north, it became uh, Chan Buddhism. And Chan, the word Chan, comes from Jhana. So Jhana, Chan, and Chan became Zen. Buddhism melds really, blends really well with whatever it meets. So in Tibet, it met Bon. And so you have all of these images, and I don't know when the fancy hats came in, you know, the, and the horns, but it met with that. And in the West right now, it's meeting psychotherapy, neuroscience, research. And so we're like, oh, yeah, you know, we're looking at psych how psychotherapy is talking to Buddhism. And in some way, that's new, but it's just the way it's worked. Whatever was there, it meets it. So we, we can talk about psychotherapy as a language that we understand because talking about devotion would be a little bit more difficult. And so it's then simply went north and then it reached China, Japan, Korea, you know, that kind of part of the world. So it was more geographical. It is different. It's different. You know, you have that, uh, the Mahayana school uh, went and it emphasized certain things, for example, sunyata, the uh, emptiness. And emptiness is found in the Theravada tradition, but it, it, it's, it's talked about in, in different ways. Um, same as Tibetan Buddhism, you know, they, 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 they do visualizations and things that Theravadans don't do. So it's, it's actually quite different in some ways. Um, 
and in in other ways, it's just like looking at any other religion. What is the core of it? How do you get to the core of it? And what you know, what I call mystical, the, the mystical experience. Um, and uh, it's funny, you know, like 13 years of Catholic school, studying, talking to people, and only last year the crucifixion made sense to me as a symbol. Like, it just, it makes sense. <laughs> and not as a symbol, not, not, to, not to diminish with the truth that other people, you know, how other people see it. But all of a sudden, I was like, yeah, the crucifixion. Like, there's a, you know, and the Our Father has always made sense to me. Not literally, but it's like poetry. There's something about thy will be done that makes sense to me. You know? <laughs> Because there's this non-self. There's all, it's all words. Words are so inadequate. So completely inadequate. I just bought a fijoa at Rainbow Foods. Anybody has ever tasted a fijoa? It's from New Zealand. So how, how many words do I need to describe to you the flavor of a fijoa? If I can't even do that, how am I going to describe meditation or eternal truth or it's language, right? It's so difficult. So anyway, they're little green, things like that. Family of the guava. <laughs> so let's take a couple of minutes to finish up. My monk's name was Katanyuto. Katanyu means gratitude. Katanyuto is one who feels gratitude. The definition of gratitude is knowing what you have received. To be aware of what you have received. And so we're healthy enough to be here. How fully aware that are we that we are healthy enough to be here? Being surrounded by people that do not want to harm us. Just letting go of the words through the spirit of gratitude. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.